about in other classes, uh, let's remember the golden rule. Uh, we're learning from God's word. We want to be learning the truth. If you find anything uh, that I'm talking about this evening to be incorrect or in error, please let me know. I would consider you my friend, and I'd be happy to get that correction out to everybody as well. We're studying things with eternal consequences, and so we want to take that seriously and make sure that we're learning the truth. Uh, where we finished off last class was in uh, chapter 13. First of First Samuel, we had Saul being, um, you know, being in this battle. He's lost a bunch of his soldiers. He's now gone from three thousand men down to six hundred, and he's facing an army of the Philistines that is innumerable as the sea, has thirty thousand chariots and six thousand horsemen, or as the sand on the seashore. Excuse me. And so uh, that's where we left off. Uh, but I wanted to. Uh, Try some technology, just for a moment. Uh, If you can't see it too well, I apologize. But this is a map of the area that we're looking at, right? And this is this area in kind of purpley right here is the kingdom of Israel. Thank you. Um, And all surrounding it, obviously, are the other nations, right? uh, We have Moab, we have Ammon, we have Amalekites, we have the Philistines, The area that you see in purple for Israel is not the area that they were supposed to have. Not the complete area, right? What were they supposed to do with all these other nations? Supposed to be gone, right? They're not supposed to be there. They are supposed to control everything, all of this. But they do not. And why do they not? They didn't do it, right? They just didn't do it. They got there, they started... And then they stopped, right? Uh, Which is sometimes what we often do as well. Um, But they're surrounded by these nations, and Saul at this time is trying to push them back out, right? He's trying to push the Amalekites. At this time, he's trying to push the Philistines back out of the land. And in chapter 13, we saw a lot of issues with Saul, right? Before that, we saw Saul have a great victory over the, Am- uh, the Ammonites, right? Nahash, we saw him have a great victory over him because he was following the spirit of the Lord, right? He was going and giving the deliverance that the Lord was going to have him give to the people and, and following him. In chapter 13, Saul gets impatient. He can't wait for Samuel to come and offer the sacrifice. He's losing people. He's afraid he's going to lose this battle, and so he just goes ahead and offers the sacrifice anyway, and there's consequences for that, right? His kingdom is going to be ripped out of his hands, and his family, his lineage is not going to continue in that role. And so chapter 14 begins with a different person, a different character. We don't begin with Saul, we begin with who? Jonathan. Who is Jonathan? Saul's son, right? Saul's son. And we've already seen some good things from Jonathan. Jonathan defeated the Philistines and uh, brought a victory over a garrison in Geba. um, And the Philistines heard about it. And so here we have Jonathan again. And in verses 1 through 3, Jonathan and his armor bearer, they have an idea, right? Jonathan has an idea. He says, come, let us cross over to the Philistine garrison that is on the other side. Uh, But he didn't tell anybody, didn't tell his father, nobody in the camp knew. They just go. I think it's interesting in verse uh, verse 3, 
that it specifically mentions there, you know, there are these 600 men with Saul. And who is there specifically? The priest. It specifically says, right, Ahijah, the son of all these different people, the priest of the Lord at Shiloh was there wearing the ephod, right? He's there. Okay, he's there. He's wearing the ephod. He has the priest there. That's going to come back up later. But just remember that. Jonathan has this idea. He's going to go and he's going to take on the Philistines. That's interesting because that's very different from what his father thought in the last chapter, right? So we'll see some, some differing characteristics here. But he, he goes up in verse 4 and 5 in this pass. There's a pass uh, by which Jonathan is going to cross over to the Philistine garrison. There's a sharp crag on one side, a sharp crag on the other. Uh, one is Bozes, the other is Sinna. And it, it's uh, on the north side, opposite Michmash, and on the south side, opposite Geba, right? It's very specific about where this pass is. Point of history, right? How accurate is the Bible? How accurate is the scriptures? How about geographically, right? Can we trust what we have in the word? Yes, we can. And some other gentlemen thought they could as well. In 1918, in World War I, there was a uh, British general, uh, General Allenby. He's sent to Palestine, you know, this area, to fight some Turks. And what he does is he has a lot of his men buy Bibles. He does that because he doesn't have a geographical map of the location to just hand out to everybody, right? But what's readily available? Bibles. So they buy Bibles. Why would they want those? What is the, where does the Bible take place mostly? Yeah, right here, right? Right here. That's where he is. It's right here. And it talks a lot about this area. And so they buy the Bibles so that they know the location, they know the area, they know what's going on. And while they're there, they plan an attack in an area known as Mishmash. I've heard that name, right? And one of his uh, majors heard that name as well. Vivian Gilbert, one of the majors, uh, thought the name sounded familiar. They searched through the passages again, and they find this passage right? 1 Samuel 14. And they see that there's this pass that could get them around the army of the Turks and sneak some men in. And essentially what happens is very similar to what happens with Jonathan and his armor bearer, right? They sneak an infantry group in through this pass. Uh, They take out the sentries that are are watching the pass. There weren't very many there. They find the, the area. They go up through it and They surprise the Turkish troops and have a great victory. All that to say, we can trust what's in here, right? I mean, they don't have Jonathan. They don't have Samuel. They don't have, you know, these people there to ask them, hey, is this pass actually here? They just took it and they went on with it and they found it to be true, right? And why is that? Because the truth is the truth. It is that simple, right? The truth is the truth. It doesn't change. And so we should believe it, right? And I think that's important uh, for us. It helps build our faith to see these examples from history where someone's not looking for, uh, you know, anything 
untoward. They're not trying to find any kind of gimmick or anything like that. They're using the Bible as truth in a way that we may not necessarily use it, right? We're not using the Bible today as our Google Maps to find how to get different places, but we use it in our lives. And if it's accurate about historical and geographical information, why would it not be accurate about the rest, right? I just found that interesting and thought I would share. But moving on, so Jonathan and his armor bearer go up into this location, and there's this big difference between Jonathan and Saul in verse 6, right? Jonathan understands something that Saul seems to not yet understand, Um, Even when Saul had the great victory over Nahash and his forces, Saul had a large army, right? 300 plus thousand, right? 330,000 was in his army at that time. Now he's down to 600. It's not the same dynamic, right? But what does Jonathan say in verse 6? Right. I I like what he says. Perhaps the Lord will work for us, for the Lord is not restrained to save by many or by few. Right? You can be restrained to save by many. Right? Have you ever tried to get a very big group of people together for, you know, I don't know, some kind of event or something, and you have to get them all to agree on something and how they're going to do it and get it all going, right? What happens the bigger your group gets? It's really hard, right? Eventually, it becomes almost impossible, right? If you get 3,000 people in one group and say, okay, you need to come up with the same solution to solve this problem. Get it done. You have 45 minutes. It's not going to happen, right? It's not going to happen. You're not going to get them to agree on everything. You can be restrained to save by many. You can be restrained to save by few in, in our world, right? In in human terms, you can be restrained to save by few. You can have issues if you don't have enough people, right? Um, but the Lord is not restrained by many or by few, right? It can be one, it can be 300,000, it could be a million, it could be 30, it could be five, it could be four, it could be, you know, pick a number, right? doesn't matter. The Lord is not restrained to save by many or by few. This also seems to me kind of a precursor of you know, we have later on all these stories of David's mighty men, and they're doing things similar to this, right? King David's thirsty. Well, hey, how about you and me? We go down in this garrison, kill everybody, and take some water and bring it back to our king. Okay, yeah, let's do that, right? Um, right? Valiant men. I think that kind of started here. It seems to be spurred on by Jonathan and his character here in, yeah, me and the armor bearer, let's go. We'll see what happens. And that's a kind of faith that Saul never reaches, right? Saul never attains that. Um, Saul is looking at different measurements as far as his success. You know, he's not measuring things by the Lord. He's measuring things by maybe his own standards, what he sees, what he believes is going to happen. Their dedication to his laws, that might come up in a minute, right? Um, But he's not using the same standard that Jonathan seems to be using here. And so Jonathan and the young man who are carrying his armor, they go up, and the armor bearer says, "Uh, sure, do all that's in your heart, right? So it's not just Jonathan's faith. You have this armor bearer who's showing a lot of faith as well, right? You're you're the guy following the guy who's going into the garrison. And uh, and he says, yeah, let's go. Um, 
Jonathan then has this uh, test, quote unquote, right? He has a, a test to see if the Lord is going to be with them, taking them uh, into victory here against this garrison. And that test is essentially going up and saying, okay, if the Philistines say, come up to us, then we'll know the Lord is with us, the Lord's on our side, and he's giving us the victory, and we'll go, and we'll take them out. If we go up to them and they say, wait a minute, and we'll meet you down there, then we'll know the Lord is not with us in this, and we should just, we should leave, right? Um, and that's understandable, right? It's two of them, it's a, it's a large army in the garrison, they got to come out of the fort or whatever, it would take them time, they can just disappear. But is this Jonathan, quote-unquote, testing the Lord as we see condemned other places? No, it's not, right? What is this really? We might say that this is Jonathan making sure that the Lord's on his side, right? Verifying that he is doing what the Lord would have him do, and not, you know, contradicting what the Lord would have him do, right? And I think it's it's something that we don't necessarily see ourselves, but we do this often. You may say, wait, what? I don't, I don't do that. Right? If this person at work tells me this, then I'll do that. I'll know I can do that. No, that's not what we're doing. But we do this often in that, how do we know that we're doing what the Lord wants us to do? Yeah, we have it right here, right? We study this. That's how we know. We do it often. What do you mean? Well, why do we lead singing on Sundays and, and Wednesday nights? Why do we not use instruments of music in our worship? Why do we not have a giant laser show that I am not in charge of running because I'm not going to be capable of doing that and teaching at the same time? Uh, it's because we check the scriptures to see what we are authorized to do often, right? To make sure that the Lord is with us in what we're doing because that's important. What did Saul do last chapter? He didn't do that, right? He just said, uh, Samuel's not here. We've got to have the sacrifice. And so, okay, I'll do the sacrifice. Because he said seven days. He's not here on the seventh day. I've got to do it because everybody's leaving. So we'll just, we'll just do it, right? Don't ask. Just get it done. That was Saul's plan. But Jonathan's different, right? Okay, yeah, let's go take this garrison. Well, how do we know the Lord's going to be with us and give us victory in this? Well, okay, if they say, come up to us, then we know the Lord's giving it into our hand. If they do not, then that's fine too. We'll just leave, right? Now, that idea of authority, we have to have authority always. Um, and we have to remember that. Oop, I forgot to advance my map. This is a map of the location where they currently are in this battle that's about to take place, right? You have Mitchmash, you have the pass in very large letters. Um, and remember, the Philistine forces split into three different companies. They divided up. So that's the, the black arrows going north and east and west. Um, and so, you know, John, they're here in the middle at this pass uh, attacking this garrison. So Jonathan and his... Uh, armor bearer go up, and they begin the battle, right? And what happens? The Philistines say, yeah, come up to us, right? And so they know, all right, here we go. And they go to battle. And what, what happens in the forces there at the garrison? Yeah, they just, 
they're being destroyed, right? And there's a lot of confusion from that. Jonathan and his armor bearer are uh, putting men to death. The first slaughter, like the first slaughter, right? Implying there are other slaughters that happen after. The first slaughter, um, which Jonathan and his armor bearer made, was about 20 men within a half a furrow in an acre of land. Left and right, right? They're taking them out. And beyond that, they're creating this large confusion that's causing the rest of the forces to freak out. They don't know what's happening. They get up, they're, they're like, oh no, we're under attack. And you got a sword, you're trying to kill me, okay. And they start attacking each other because, you know, it's, they, they don't know what's happening. There's a panic. And uh, Jonathan and the armor bearer are, are giving this great victory in, in uh, this attack. Or the Lord is giving them a great victory in this attack. It causes a trembling in the camp, verse 15. A trembling in the camp, in the field, and among all the people. Even the garrison and the raiders trembled, and the earth quaked, so that it became a great trembling. That's, that's significant if you were there, right? That's not like... Oh, there was confusion, and then everybody ran around and went, Ah, I don't know what I'm doing. No, there's, there's trembling in the earth. Right? That's a lot. But remember, how many people do the Philistines have? They have a lot of people, right? Uh, like the sands on the seashore. A lot of people. If you have that much confusion and there's that much movement, yeah, there might be some noise, right? Might be a lot of noise. It's enough noise that in verse 16, Saul's watchman... In Gibeah of Benjamin, look, and the multitude is melting away, and they're running here and there. Any comments up to this point on Jonathan and his armor bearer? Okay. So Saul hears, he's alerted to the battle, and he decides that he wants to go, right? He's ready. Okay, there's a battle. Everything's going on. Who's missing? Well, his son's missing, right? So, okay, so family's in danger, maybe. So we got to go save him. So let's go. Let's get our 600 men and let's go. But he doesn't want to just go. In verse 16, or excuse me, verse 17, they number the people. They find that Jonathan and his armor bearer are not there. So in verse 18, Saul says to Ahijah, what does he want with him? Bring the ark. Right? Bring the ark of the Lord. Here's where I pause and I say, remember when we learned about, but we, we didn't study this part, so I'll just tell you. So in 1 Samuel, right, in the beginning of 1 Samuel, when we first see Samuel, Samuel is first anointed as a prophet, and then immediately after that, the, Phil- the Philistines come and the Israelites go into battle and they bring the ark of the Lord And what happens to the ark? Yeah, it's taken. The Lord doesn't give them victory. And they are very distraught by that, right? But that's when Samuel is anointed a prophet. That's the first thing that happens. The ark of the Lord is taken because they have this decision that, well, if we bring the ark of the Lord into this battle against the Philistines, the Lord's not going to... You know, he'll definitely give us victory because we have his ark here, right? We have the ark here. That means we have the Lord, which means we're going to get victory. But the lesson that they're supposed to learn from that ark being taken 
and carried off with the Philistines is the Lord does not live in the ark, right? He is not boxed up in the ark with the commandments, the tablets of stone, with the manna, with Aaron's rod. The Lord is not in there. So you can carry the box around wherever you would like. You are not moving the Lord with you, right? That's the lesson they were supposed to learn. Saul didn't get it. Uh, Saul didn't, didn't understand, apparently. Because Saul decides that, yeah, okay, I need to have the Lord with me, right? Last chapter, he's got to have the Lord with him. So if Samuel's not here to do the sacrifice, somebody has to do it. And he's the king, so he'll just do it, right? Because the Lord has to be with me. Well, he's kind of making the same mistake here in bringing the ark of the Lord with them into battle. Um, In uh, verse 19... While Saul's talking to the priest, there's the commotion in the, in the camp of the Philistines continues and increases. So Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hand. Uh, I think here Ahijah is trying to stop him. Right? Why else would he say withdraw your hand? Right? Ahijah's trying, he's got his hand out. No, 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 no. We don't want to do this. Leave it where it is. But Saul's going to have his way, right? He is the king. So he commands he withdraw his hand, and then they go into battle. I think that's just, you know, showing this lack of understanding that Saul has about the Lord. Um, And I bring that up because what we know about Saul is that the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. The Lord changed his spirit. He prophesied at one point in time. But yet, here he's making all these mistakes. So what does that mean? It means the Spirit of the Lord does not grant you the inability to make mistakes, right? It doesn't make you perfect and remove your free will from occurring, right? Saul can make these decisions and go against the will of the Lord if he wants to because he still has free will. So all these ideas of once saved, always saved, of you know everlasting grace, all these different things are null and void because we still have free will. We can make the decision to do it our own way, to not consult the Lord, to not look at his commands, to not consult you know, the spiritual leaders, right? Not take the wisdom of the priest into consideration and just do it ourselves and make the wrong decision, right? We can still do that. Even if we had the Spirit of the Lord at one point in time, right? Even if we made the right decision at one point in time, we can still make mistakes. We can still make the errors. We can still make those sins. Um, but it requires, you know, th- this you know, idea that the Lord is bound up in an object and that gives me some kind of, of righteousness, is, is very common in our society today, right? You have the families that have, we have a family Bible sitting in our, in our living room or in you know, the, the formal living, sitting room, and it's, it's been in the family for hundreds of years, and no, no, you can't, you can't touch it, right? It stays there, sitting there, can't touch it. It's too old, it might fall apart. It's there. And that means our family's right, right? We're doing the right thing because... I've kept this in this box for this many years, right? And that means I'm righteous now. We do that often with a lot of different things, 
Sometimes we do that with a family name, right? Because I have this family name, you know what that means in my family, and I can't make a mistake because you know my family and what they've gone through and what they've done and where they've been and how they came. Well, that really doesn't matter because, again, we have free will, and if you want to, you can tear that reputation all to pieces if you want to, right? Yes, Brother Sam. When I, when I read this, and up until now, I, you, you brought a little bit different view of it to me, and, and I think it could be correct, but up until this point, I've always read this thinking that Saul maybe had a change of heart, was going to ask the priest to consult God to give him direction. And then, as I have read this, it almost seems like he's distracted by what's going on and doesn't want to wait on God's answer. And so he tells the priest, no, no, like, no, we don't have time. We got to go. Right. Um, but, you know, like you're saying very well, could have been I mean, this other way as well. It's true. Either way, it's, it's really the same issue, right? Which is you have to understand and wait or ask for the consideration of the Lord first regardless of what's going on around you or how urgent it seems or, you know, whatever, regardless, you have to consult the Lord and make sure you're doing it the way that he wants and fulfilling his commands. Yeah, that's right. Right, right. Yeah. Any other comments? So Saul talks to the priest, withdraw, uh, he withdraws the hand, Saul and all the people who were with him, again, remember, how many people are with him? Six, 600, right? We've said it. They've, they've numbered him off like four or five times. Saul is really worried that he's losing more people, I think, because he keeps counting them every, every chance he gets, right? 600 people with Saul, and they go out uh, into the field of battle, and behold, every man's sword was against his fellow, and there was great confusion, right? Saul comes to the scene thinking, oh, great, Jonathan and his armor bearer are in trouble. We're going to come in save them maybe, and it's not a problem, right? They're fighting each other. They're fighting themselves. And so uh, Saul and all the people with him uh, rally, and, uh, and then the Hebrews that have been hiding in these cliffs, in these, uh, these caves, in the, in the mountains, hiding, they see this victory happening, and they say, okay, here's our chance, right? Oh, they've, they're they're being victorious. Well, here we go. Let's all join in. And they come out and they, uh, they go, come around the camp. And uh, they also turn uh, to be with the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. And when all the men who hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim heard it, uh, they also pursued them closely. So Jonathan and his armor bearer go in with the intent of getting rid of this garrison. And the Lord provides a victory. Not just with Jonathan and his armor bearer. Again, remember Jonathan's statement with the few, right? But also with Saul and his 600 men. Also with the Israelites who are hiding in the mountains, in the caves. So again, the many, right? God is not restrained to provide victory with the few or with the many. And it's indicated here. So the Lord delivers Israel that day and the battle spread beyond beth Aven. So there's a victory. Now, the last time 
Saul had a victory, uh, Nahash, right? We remember Nahash, and he had a victory, and after he had the victory, who did he give the glory to? He gave the glory to the Lord, the Lord gave deliverance, and, and then that was it, right? But now Saul is turning yet again a bit more like the kings of the day, the kings of the other nations, and his enemy is fleeing, and what does he want to do? Run them down, right? Run them down and eliminate them all. We're going to eliminate them all. Not necessarily a bad thing, right? What were the children of Israel supposed to do when they got in the land? They were supposed to eliminate them all, right? And so, okay, I'll give you that one, Saul. Eliminate them all. But he goes to an extreme, right? And what does he make the people do? He puts them under an oath. An oath to do what? Yeah, we are going to destroy the Philistines and we are going to ensure that they are all completely destroyed so that Saul can have what? Vengeance, right? He wants his vengeance. And so he makes the people not eat until he's avenged himself on his enemies. Um. You know, we, we read this and we go, huh? Why? Right? Um, it's because he's, he's angry. It's because he, he wants to have this great victory and be avenged against the Philistines who, again, remember, they've been oppressing the people for quite a while. And that's not been comfortable and pleasant, I'm sure. Right? But Saul wants to do this for himself. And so he's imposing this judgment on, or this curse on the people to show how dedicated he is, right? That's usually why these things occur. I want to show how dedicated I am. So I'm going to put myself under this burden to prove something. Um, in this case, it's to get his vengeance. Similarly to Jephthah, right? We learned about Jephthah and his foolish vow. I think the thing that really makes Jephthah's vow very foolish is it's not necessary, right? Jephthah's vow was, if you give me victory, then I will offer the first thing that comes out of my house. Well, I mean, is it necessary? Does the Lord need you to offer the first thing that comes out of your house? Could you not have just offered the, you know, I don't know, the standard sacrifices that we see David and Joshua, and all these other men offering after they have a great victory? Yes, you could have, right? Why did you make that vow? It was unnecessary. Why does Saul make the people enter into this oath? It's unnecessary, right? It's not encouraging. It's not building anybody up. It's not strengthening his forces. It's not... I don't know, uniting them all in something that would drive them to get to the goal. It's just a, a weight that they have to carry, an extra weight that they have to carry that's unnecessary and tiring and could lead them into trouble, right? Could lead them into temptation, could lead them into sin, could have consequences that 
they really are just putting on themselves, right? So they can't eat anything. Well, Jonathan hasn't heard this. Why has Jonathan not heard this? Yeah, he was, he's in the garrison fighting, right? He hasn't been with the people. He's in the garrison fighting. So Jonathan catches up. The people pass through a land of, uh, pass through a forest, and there's honey on the ground. And the people see the, the honey, and they, they don't eat the honey, right? We see the honey. Probably some of them drool over the honey. They're really hungry at this point. They've been fighting hard. Now they're chasing people down. But they don't eat the honey. I mean, kudos to the people, right? Because this is one of the oaths that they seem to be actually trying to carry out, right? It's unfortunate when the children of Israel put a lot of emphasis and they're really trying to not eat what Saul has told them they should do. But when it comes to what the Lord had them under an oath to do, you know, we'll, we'll keep what we can, but maybe not all of it, right? Jonathan hasn't heard it, and so he sees the honey and he's hungry. And he does what any regular person would do, and he eats the honey, right? And that honey gives him strength. That honey gives him sustenance. That honey gives him something that he was lacking, right? It restores him. And, you know, the people, though, they see it, and they they come up to Jonathan, and they say, Hey, Jonathan, hey, you're not supposed to do that, right? You're, You're not supposed to eat. Jonathan, did no one tell you? We're under an oath. We can't eat. And I like what Jonathan says in verse 9. Jonathan sees the trouble in this, right? He sees the problem that this is going to cause. He says, My father has troubled the land. See now how my eyes have brightened because I tasted a little of this honey. How much more if only the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies which they found. For now the slaughter among the Philistines has not been great. Again, just further emphasizing this oath is totally unnecessary. Saul is not putting these people under a, uh, you know, he's not limiting their resources, right? He's not monitoring it because they have low food, right? He's not having to ration anything uh, to save, you know, what little provisions they have. No, they just had a great victory. There's a garrison up there. You better believe they have supplies, right? Supplies to, to uh you know, serve the, the Philistines that are in that location. And so it's not a lack of supplies that Saul is doing this, right? Saul is doing this strictly for his own vengeance and to try and, I don't know, motivate the people into, you know, doing more things. It reminds me a bit of Rehoboam, right? Rehoboam is asked, you know, are you going to lessen our burden or make it more? And he gets bad advice and he says, I'm going to make it more. Okay, what did that get you? Well, it split the kingdom in half, and I lost a bunch of stuff. Bad advice. Uh, the, the thing we have to learn from this, though, is that sometimes we can do the same thing. Um, I'm not usually in battle situations where I make my, you know, my forces swear oaths that they will not eat until we defeat our enemies. Not usually. Sometimes every third Tuesday. No, I'm, I'm never in that situation, right? But, do we not sometimes do similar things? Sometimes we restrict ourselves in a way 
that we think is going to be beneficial, that we think is going to be helpful, but sometimes it really just throws up an additional burden that we do not need, right? We do not need that burden. It just makes it harder for us. Why? I don't know. Maybe it's because of our own pride. Maybe it's because of our own stubbornness. Maybe it's because of our own selfishness. You know, whatever the case may be. But sometimes we do similar things. Sometimes we put ourselves under, you know, these bands, as it were, right? And that's discussed in the New Testament as well, right? There's self-made religions. There's religions that are all focused around the idea of uh, abstaining from different things. And we do that because it makes us feel like we're doing something that's righteous. It makes us feel like we're, we're being holy because we're, we're you know, we're not, I'm not allowing myself to, to do this one thing, or I'm not allowing myself to eat certain things on this one week of the year, or I'm not allowing myself to, you know, whatever it might be. And that makes me feel like I have self-control, right? Because I did that this one point, this one time of the year that I chose on my terms, right? That's an illusion, right? It's an illusion of selfishness. It's an illusion of righteousness. It's an illusion of all these things that you're trying to accomplish. And all it does is it puts a burden on you that then, you know, we've all, we've all done it before, right? I'm trying, I'm going to be on a diet, and so I'm not going to eat these certain things. Okay, so I don't eat the certain things, and I'm going to do that for a certain number of days. Let's say 30. So I do that for 30 days, and then at the end of those 30 days, I've abstained from all these things, and it's been great and wonderful. And, and then I'm out. I'm out of the diet. So what do I do? I eat everything I wanted to eat the whole entire time while I was dreaming those 30 days, right? Or whatever the time frame may be, right? But we do that all the time. Right? We do it all the time. We have to be careful. And we have to eliminate any burden that we have that's potentially throwing up blocks and temptations to ourselves. Right? We don't want to be our worst enemy because Satan is already prowling around like a lion looking to devour us. We don't need to help him out. Right? We don't need to throw up uh, temptations and blocks and stumbling blocks for ourselves. Because what can happen is the same thing that happens to the Israelites here, right? Verse 31 and 32, they strike the Philistines that day. Uh, from Mishmash to Ijalon, the people are weary. And so, verse 32, they rush upon the spoil. They take the sheep, oxen, and calves. They slay them, and they eat them with the blood. What's one of the commandments in the Old Testament? Don't eat blood, Right? But they're starving, right? They've been going through this battle. They have not eaten. They are starving. They've been chasing people, running around. So, yeah, they, they disobeyed a command of the Lord, right? And in verse 33, they tell Saul, saying the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. And Saul is upset, right? You have acted treacherously. Roll a great stone to me, verse 33. And so verse 34, he says, Each of you bring me his ox or his sheep. We'll slaughter it here and eat. Do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. So Saul is upset by this, right? Why are you eating it with the blood? Well, Saul, slow down, back up. Remember, there's causes for our actions, right? There's consequences for different things. 
consequence of his oath to the people to have them not eat is this, right? This situation right here. So Saul thinks he's fixed it, right? He's going to fix it. Okay, well, everybody can eat now. So don't sin against the Lord. You know, cook your food. Don't eat it with the blood, right? Slaughter it properly. And, and it'll be okay. And in verse 35, just to, you know, make sure he's covering all his bases, Saul built an altar to the Lord. It was the first altar that he built to the Lord, right? First one is right here. Now, you know, okay, yes, the people are, you know, disobeying a commandment of the Lord, but I think it's interesting that it specifically says that here, that this is the first altar that he built to the Lord. Uh, I think back to last chapter and what Brother Bruce said. I think Saul sometimes has this idea that I haven't done anything wrong, right? Uh, I'm just trying to, to do what, what is right and what I should be doing. And, you know, Samuel didn't come, so I offered the sacrifice. And, yeah, he, he scolded me for it, but... You know, I had to have the Lord on my side, and so here, uh, you know, I got to, you know, people are disobeying God, so I'm going to build an altar. But I think the, the idea of, is Saul troubled by this, is kind of answered more by the rest of the chapter, right? The rest of the chapter is Saul wanting to go after the rest of the Philistines, right? Go by night and take, every, uh, take the spoil among them until the morning, and will not leave a man there. And the people say... Do what seems right to you, right? Saul's been doing pretty good so far, so Saul, do whatever seems right to you. The priest, though, says, we need to ask who? We need to ask God first. Okay. So again, Saul does not have this forward part of thinking about God, the Lord, first. He's thinking about the Lord later, right? Maybe not second, maybe not third even, but later we'll think about the Lord. Um, the priest says, well, we need to inquire from the Lord here. So Saul inquires of God, shall I go down to the Philistines? Verse 37, will you give them into the hand of Israel? But the Lord did not answer him on that day. Saul draws all the people there and he says, somebody disobeyed the oath, right? Somebody didn't keep the oath. And that makes him very angry. And he says, whoever did it is going to die right now. My point that I'm trying to make is, what did he do when they disobeyed the command of the Lord? He said, whoa, guys, what are you doing? Here's a stone. Just, okay, kill the oxen correctly. Slaughter them properly. Don't eat with the blood. Okay, don't do it. Don't do it again. Here's an altar. And, okay. What do they do when they disobey the command of Saul? Draw lots. We'll pull the person and we'll kill him right here. Even if it's my son, we'll kill him right here. You don't disobey Saul and his oath. Saul does not have the authority of the Lord, right? Saul is a man. He does not have the authority of the Lord. Yes, he is a king. Yes, he is given authority, but he is not given the same authority as God. And I think it's unique here in this situation that in verse 45, when, Saul is, when Jonathan is chosen, who saves Jonathan? The people, Right? I think this is unique and significant in that I do not know of any other time when the children of Israel banded together to save a king or a king's son from a command of a king, right? The, the children of Israel didn't really band together to save a lot of the prophets. They really didn't band together to save a lot of other people that were following God's uh, laws, God's commands, or give them, gave them victory from the Lord. 
But in this case, they do. And that deflates Saul and his ego. And he's just done, right? He withdraws there from the Philistines, verse 46. And the Philistines go up to their own place. Thank you for your attention.